This episode is sponsored by Lightyear and includes financial promotions. Lightyear is an investment app offering low-fee, transparent pricing for US and European stocks and zero execution fee for ETFs. You can also earn 4.5% net interest on your cash and 5.07% net yield through BlackRock Money Market Funds as of 27th of November 2023. Sign up using the code PENSIONCRAFT to get a US fractional share worth $10. Remember that investing puts your capital at risk. Terms and conditions in the description below. Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. The fear of missing out tempts us all. Amid fast-moving markets and 24-hour news, FOMO can be an investor's worst enemy, derailing decision-making and undermining long-term goals. But there are ways to defy the siren's call. I want to know what strategies might help us stick to our plan. And in today's dumb question of the week, when is the right time to sell an investment? Okay, let's get into it. As we know, in investing, the best approach often is to have a long-term plan with clear goals and stick to it over the decades as you grow your wealth. But that's easier said than done. Even in just the last few years, we've seen a lot of bubbles. We've seen crypto, we've seen meme stocks, and maybe now we're even in the middle of an AI bubble. But it's hard to resist these things, isn't it, Roman? What about you? Do you feel that you sort of actively have to resist this fear of missing out when it comes to investing? Absolutely, because if you think of it as being a little bit like catching a virus, so you're at a big party, you know there's someone with a bit of a cough and they cough all over you. It's a bit like that because I have to speak to so many people about investing and I pick up what they say and I can't help it. Right. You know, if they are an enthusiast for a certain investment, like, I don't know, it could be uranium, it could be crypto, well, you just inevitably start to pick up their beliefs. Have you gone for that metaphor because we're both very under the weather this week? (laughs) I've just taken about 15 strepsils to be able to talk. Yeah, there was a Christmas party at the weekend and this guy sitting next to me was just coughing away and I just thought, oh no, this is my livelihood. But as ever, you've used that for good content. Indeed, you have to use everything. But let's just start at the basics then. Why is FOMO dangerous? I think the primary problem is that by the time you hear about something, it's already well into the log phase when it's going up really quickly. If not, it's already close to the peak. So if you act early, then FOMO is not necessarily a bad thing. But the trouble is that the FOMO kicks in after the rally's largely passed. And at that point, you've got really high valuations and probably a reversal around the corner. So that means your long-term plan, which is probably to buy stocks and stick with them, or whatever your plan is, is going to be shot to pieces. Yeah, this is the temptation, isn't it? To deviate from our plan in a kind of reckless way without the proper thought. Because of emotion or because you've just been sidetracked by the next shiny ball. And have you spoken to a lot of people who've had this problem over the last few years? Because we have had volatile markets, which is a big cause of FOMO, isn't it? I think the most people that I speak to who've been badly burned were either people who were told that bonds were safe and then piled into them and are now nursing pretty big losses, or they're people who were sucked into the growth rally and didn't realise that's what they'd bought. They just thought they had an amazing fund. Any of the Bailey Gifford funds, for example, the growth tilted ones anyway, all of those crashed heavily in 2022. So I think that's mostly the kind of FOMO that I see. 
But I also have some crypto bros, you know, ex-crypto bros, who still hold the faith. They still think that it's a great investment. Well, it's going back up again. It is. And I think as long as people believe in it, it'll carry on doing so. But they are nursing some pretty big losses. And I think for their core portfolio, I don't think it makes sense to have a huge crypto allocation. That's still my belief anyway. It's too volatile to be a big part of your core portfolio, surely. It's sort of risk-adjusted return terms. But that's a particularly exciting one. And so many young people that I speak to still believe that that's a really good investment because that's the thing that really got them started in investing in many cases. Yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? When you start investing, it's really hard to separate out what's a good long-term holding, which me and you would consider kind of diversified equity, versus things that are going up at that time. And you don't know which is mean reverting, which is a bubble or whatever, which has got a long-term growth trend. Because you look at crypto going up for investors over the last 10 years generally, albeit very volatile along the way. And maybe if you don't have a long-term perspective back through history, you don't realize that you can't rely on that in the way that you maybe can for global stock markets. And I think here a long-term perspective is really helpful, and none of us have it. The trouble is that we don't see many years in our life, any of us, but we see many days. And the days that we see are what we draw on. And so we have this recency bias. And by recent, I don't mean just a few days. I mean a 10-year period. And if you see something for a 10-year period, well, of course, you'll think, well, it's always going to be like that. For example, US exceptionalism. If you look at the US market, you might think that, oh, I should just buy the NASDAQ. So I think this is important to have that historical perspective and to use these statistical insights into informing your asset allocation. But it isn't just sort of young, inexperienced investors that succumb to FOMO, is it? I mean, even professionals often run aground here. Yeah, I mean, every year I do a video, which is an outlook for 2024, the best place to invest, you know, for the next year ahead. And if you look at the broker forecast for the S&P, it is just drawing a line through historic returns and saying, look, this is roughly where we are. This is where we're going to be. I'll just twist it up or down based on the recent trends. And it often overshoots. So if you have a good year, it extrapolates that. If you have a bad year, it extrapolates that. So absolutely, brokers are no exception to this. To be fair, the strategists hate making those forecasts. You know, they hate having to produce one-year forecasts because inevitably they get it wrong. You just have to try and get it as least wrong as possible, right? Well, it's plausible wrong. That's what you want. You want to say, well, the multiple will go to this. This is what we think is going to happen to earnings. Here's our economic forecast for our bank or whatever. And this is consistent with that. So really, if you tick all those boxes, it's job done as long as it's plausible. It kind of leads on to something quite interesting, which is that what we mean by FOMO really is piling into an asset that's going up quickly, but which will inevitably come down, like getting into a bubble at a late stage and not getting out in time. And as I sort of hinted at, with the stock market, which has this long trend upwards over time, when you're first starting out, it's kind of hard to understand that that isn't a bubble, right? Because we think what goes up must come down. And that's not really true of stock markets, at least when companies continue to grow their earnings. But it probably is true of a lot of other assets that what goes up must come down. That's right. And the exponential growth is just so hard to explain. It was funny, I was listening to the coverage of COVID and how the UK government coped through the crisis. And apparently one of the fundamental stumbling blocks was that many of the politicians didn't understand exponential growth. 
because exponential growth is just not intuitive. It's not something that we usually experience. And yet that's exactly what happens to stocks. They grow up exponentially. Yeah, it's really hard to understand intuitively. The thought experiment that always confuses my mind is if you imagine something's doubling every day, let's say it's lily pads on a pond and it starts in one corner and every day it doubles. So you go one lily pad, two lily pads, four, eight, whatever. And you think it's going to fill the whole pond. At what point is half the pond full of lily pads? It's one day before it's fully full of lily pads, right? I never quite get that. (laughs) It's very weird. I always have to remind myself. Yeah. And it's not intuitive. So that's one of the problems, I think, that people have difficulty facing. And this is why you get all these stupid headlines saying, oh, the market's near its all-time high, it's at its all-time high. Well, that's usually the case. It's usually pushing all-time highs. That's completely uninteresting and very boring. But what's interesting is where you are relative to profits. That's the price earnings multiple. So it's really understanding what is mean reverting and what isn't. That's the important thing. Yeah. Because that's the kind of evil trick that investing plays in our minds is eventually we grasp that stocks are kind of drifting up over time and that's a good gravy train to get on. But even that's not fast enough for us, right? We go, yeah, but if I jumped on this other bandwagon, (laughs) then maybe I'll go up even quicker. Of course, that's the temptation. And I think it's completely natural to do that. It's just that if you understand that the risk that you take when you do that is that you will underperform, then you also understand that you shouldn't do it with a large proportion of your portfolio. I also think that just mathematically, if you're in the accumulation phase, it's kind of a mistake to chase return. If you think about it like this, like imagine you've got £10,000 invested. That's your portfolio. You're quite early in your investing journey. And let's imagine you're saving £10,000 a year as well. So you're adding 10000 to your portfolio every year. Let's say the average return of stocks is 6% or something. And you think you can get 10% by going into this potentially bubbly asset. That's only going to give you another £400 a year in return. Whereas just using that time you're spending finding all these assets and analysing it means you could save way more money, right? You could work extra hours or whatever it is to save more. Like you're focusing your energies in the wrong place. Or upskilling, you know, just finding a job which is going to give you a higher salary would probably be a better use of your time. So I think that's a great example. Obviously, if you could sustain a 4% higher rate of return over decades, it would make a huge difference. But you kind of have to realize that you can't, even if you identify a short-term asset that does that. And this is why I think it's important to focus on what works. There are lots of things that people tell you. For example, you can find the next multi-bagger. I think that's just unlikely to work. And that's the problem. I've never seen someone shake their head so much in that last (laughs) sentence as you. (laughs) But as I said, it's not just amateurs or retail investors that have this problem. Like professional fund managers, when you see some of the great bubbles, whether it's the dot-com bubble or in the build-up to the financial crisis in 2008, a lot of professional fund managers got burned because maybe they broke their own rules by going into an asset where they should have really known better. And Warren Buffett didn't, notably. And he got a lot of stick at the time for not buying into the dot-com bubble, for example. And Warren Buffett has an interesting thing around FOMO, which he calls the 20-slot rule, which he often wheels out when he goes to talk to graduate students and things like that. Shall I read you it? Yeah, go on. This is Charlie Munger recounting his anecdote. Buffett says, I could improve your ultimate financial welfare by giving you a ticket with only 20 slots in it so that you had 20 punches representing all the investments that you got to make in a lifetime. 
And once you'd punched through the card, you couldn't make any more investments at all. Under those rules, you'd really think carefully about what you did and you'd be forced to load up on what you'd really thought about. So you'd do much better. Brilliant. It's true though, isn't it? Absolutely. If we knew that we couldn't reverse all our mistakes, we would be way more thorough in our investing. But in terms of professional investors sometimes getting in late on bubbles themselves, did you see Robin Wigglesworth's piece about Citibank? (laughs) (laughs) I'll read the sentence. (laughs) History repeats itself, first as tragedy, second as farce, and third as City blowing itself up on the Wall Street fad of the moment. Which in this case, I think was private credit, wasn't it? Yeah, they're deciding to expand their private credit operations. Have they got a history of this, Citibank? Oh, yeah. But in a sense, all managers at investment banks get dragged into this because it's quite boring. You know, you're the head of a trading desk. What do you do all day? You just kind of sit in your office. You're not a trader anymore. But if you get into the latest fad, you're seen as a visionary, particularly if it does boost the revenue of the company. So I think that's the feeling, you know, oh, this is happening. We should get in on it and we should get some really skillful traders in and that'll allow us to enter this market and clean up. But of course, by the time they do that, usually it's well into the bubble. Goldman in the past was particularly good at this and good at getting out just before it blew up, but not so much recently. I'd love to hear your take on all the different investment banks. One day we'll do that episode. (laughs) Yeah, we need a lawyer by then. Yeah. But you also see it at the national level. For example, the UK stock market didn't allow SPACs. And then once they saw that there was a huge bubble building in the United States, they finally managed to push through legislation, I guess, to allow it to happen in the UK, just as the market imploded. This is special purpose acquisition companies. So these are blank check companies where you give money to someone and they usually specialise in some sector. They go out and buy a company and then you essentially do an IPO for that company. It provides them with capital and then you get to benefit from the pop in the share price afterwards, hopefully. It really was the sort of last gasp of the zero interest rate era, wasn't it? It was. Like, let's just give all our money to these slightly shady managers and hope they find a good deal for us. In all the histories that are going to be written about that bubble, it's going to be one of the things in the list, the SPAC bubble. This was the top, I think, yeah. Yeah. But I guess all of this shows that no one's immune to FOMO, are they? We all get tempted. And we probably all know in our heart of hearts that it's not going to do us any good to chase these bubbles. So what can we do to resist temptation? Well, this sounds boring, and it probably is, but I think the statistics really help you here. And, you know, I'm always banging on about base rates. Look at the long-term returns. For stocks, it's going to be about 5 6% above inflation. For bonds, about 4% less. For cash, even less. And that's your base rate. That's what you should expect over the long term. And for most people, that will get you to where you need to be in terms of savings. But that's not to say we should never do anything than buy a broad index. Obviously, there's different ways to invest. And if we're looking at an investment and thinking, am I just being sucked in by FOMO? Or is this an actual good investment I found? What are you looking at there? Are you again just looking at the numbers to reassure yourself? Well, I think there's a brilliant quote from Oscar Wilde from The Picture of Dorian Gray, which is one of my favourite books, where he says, the only way to get rid of a temptation is to yield to it, resist it, and your soul grows sick with longing for the things it has forbidden to itself, with desire for what its monstrous laws have made monstrous and unlawful. Okay, give us the TLDR for that. Yeah, just do it. 
buy the thing which you think is going to be exciting, the new shiny red ball, but simply be really disciplined about the amounts that you buy. And that's what my fund portfolio is for. 10% of my investments go into that. And it's basically a money losing strategy. (laughs) But you're capping the amount of money you lose. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of helpful, I think, in order to scratch the itch and do what it is that everybody else is doing. You'll learn from it. You'll learn about yourself. You'll learn about the investment, but you won't destroy your savings, importantly. So kind of a nice sandboxing strategy. That's exactly what it is. I think it's good, though. You can't completely resist trialing stuff in investment, especially if you're like us and, you know, you're following the news and you have this sneaky suspicion that, yeah, maybe one day you could be a fund manager, right? We could all be fund managers. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of good to prove that we can't by doing it. Yeah, whenever anyone says to me, oh, Roman, you should be a fund manager, I always think you have no idea how much I would dislike that job. Yeah. What you would do is just be one of those closet tracker funds, I think, when you're <laughs> tracking the index but claiming you're doing something fancy. <laughs> oh, my favourite is the volatility washing quote from Clifford Asnes, where he says, I'll just have a normal fund, except I won't tell people what's in it, and I won't report the value of the fund, except for every quarter. Well, that's basically what private equity funds are. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't move up and down in price, or at least we don't tell you about it. And you pay more, because it's low volatility. Genius. Maybe we should become fund managers. This episode is sponsored by Lightyear and includes financial promotions. If you've been looking for an easy-to-use investment app with clear, low pricing, Lightyear may be something to consider. Lightyear offers over 3,500 stocks with trading fees capped at $1 for US stocks, £1 for UK stocks and €1 for EU stocks. You can also buy and sell ETFs on Lightyear with zero execution fee. To keep costs down further, all Lightyear users get a multi-currency account so you can trade stocks without paying currency conversion fees. You'll only be charged 0.35% FX fee when moving money between your euro, pound or dollar accounts. If you're unsure about the current investing climate, you can earn 4.5% net interest on uninvested cash in your sterling account. Alternatively, you can invest it in BlackRock's money market funds, which offer 5.07% net yield as of 27th of November 2023, with next day liquidity. Though not FSCS protected, these funds don't lock in your money like fixed-term deposits and have a AAA rating. You can buy money market funds starting with just £1 and earn dividends each month. Lightyear continues to add more products and features for UK investors, so if you want to sign up, use the code PENSIONCRAFT to get a US fractional share worth $10. Remember that investing puts your capital at risk. The value of your investments may go up as well as down. I think another useful thing is to have a checklist before you buy anything. And there are certain things which are on my checklist. I have to really understand what I'm buying. If I don't understand it, I won't buy it. Even though you might think, oh, well, everyone else has done the due diligence. Would this famous billionaire investor be buying it if it wasn't really good? But again, We've seen recently examples of that where some billionaires did buy some really stupid stuff. Billionaires often buy really stupid stuff because they've got more money to lose, right? They can take more risk. So don't try and play the same game they're playing often. Even a company like Sequoia Capital, a really clever VC, 
bought into FTX and lots and lots of money. So using other people's due diligence isn't always a good idea. Really ensure that you understand where the return's coming from, particularly if it's a high return, because those are usually the places where there's lots of hidden risk. Either it'll be leverage or it'll simply be something which is unsustainable. So if its return is way above what you'd expect from stock markets, that's 6% above inflation, there is a risk. It's just a matter of finding it. I mean, Sequoia Capital piled into FTX on the basis of a call with Sam Bankman-Fried, where he was allegedly playing League of Legends in the background as he was pitching it to them. So I don't know how diligent they were. And the obvious example is you watch SoftBank throwing their money around into lots of speculative assets. Some of them pay off, a lot of them don't. And you think, well, that's run by a billionaire. But as I said, they're not playing the same game you are, probably. And what they do isn't really relevant, I don't think. People obsess about those billionaire videos on YouTube, but it's not necessarily applicable to you. Especially because lots of fund managers are trying to gather assets, right? A lot of these investments are kind of marketing strategies to make you want to put money into their fund. Yeah, what's easy to sell? It's the thing which is the hot investment of the moment. And that's why thematic funds, I think, are usually just marketing ploys. Here it'll be something like you can buy an AI-themed fund because that's what everyone else is investing in. However, usually by the time it becomes popular and turned into a fund, a thematic fund, usually it's too late and you'll end up overpaying. I think your point about make sure you understand whatever it is you're buying is a good one. What kind of test could you give yourself? to see if you really understand it to a sufficient degree. Because it's all on a continuum here, isn't it? If I'm investing in some kind of nuclear power company, maybe I can understand its balance sheet and kind of what it does. But do I really understand speculative nuclear fusion? And I speak to lots of people who invest in a company because they understand what it does, but they may not understand its business. And that's a very different thing. And so, for example, you might have a company where you understand the tech, but you don't understand whether it's going to be very profitable in future or whether its current valuation is just unrealistic, given its market share in the future. I always think this, to be able to be confident in an investment, you need to wear so many different hats. You need to be able to analyse their business model, their technology, their marketing strategy, their financials, maybe even the macro economy to see if it's a good time to buy. Who has all these different hats where they're sufficiently competent? It's very unusual. I think another good way to do it is to try and explain it to someone else because you'll really see if you understand it at that point. And if they start to look at you in a slightly quizzical way, thinking how they can tactfully tell you you've gone mad, then you know that something's wrong. And probably not just one person, right? Because what makes a market is different opinions and someone's going to hate it. So maybe talk to a few people who you trust. Or start a YouTube channel and try and explain it. The comments will lead you in the right direction, won't they, Robin? Those YouTube comments? (laughs) Reliable? Uh, Yeah. It's more about whether I'm wearing lipstick or not. Do you wear lipstick? People are convinced you do. This is the biggest conspiracy theory going. No, it's the lighting. It's what they all say. (laughs) (laughs) But however you get it, it's good to get feedback on whatever you're thinking of doing. And another way to do it is to put yourself into the mind of someone who's producing the counter-argument, who's trying to convince you not to buy the thing. Someone who's shorting the stock. Exactly. So you're talking to Muddy Waters, Carson Block, and you're trying to explain why you should short the stock or short the fund. And hopefully that should create some kind of balance. And if at the end of that, you're still convinced it's a good investment, then, you know, maybe it is. 
I mean, we've talked so many times about the investment journal and how just the process of writing down what you intend to do, the reasons behind it, and potentially these counter arguments as well, is just a really good habit to get into. Because one, it allows you to reflect on your past mistakes. Like the last time you got caught up in some speculative bubble, you can look back and say, oh, my thoughts now look a lot like what I was saying back then. <laughs> and I've heard it said that unless we write down our thoughts, we don't actually know what we're thinking. It's just kind of like the writing process itself helps us organize and rationalize our thoughts. Or if we're thinking at all. Sometimes I think people just rush to a judgment based on emotion and what other people have said, or perhaps what their friends have said, all of which are not particularly good reasons to buy. It's good just to slow down, isn't it? If you're in the position where you're looking at an investment and thinking, oh my God, I must buy it now, like today, or I might miss out on this opportunity. That's almost certainly a bad investment, right? If it depends on buying at whatever the price is today, you're not buying a Black Friday sale here. You're presumably buying a stock you want to hold for a decade at least. So maybe you can wait a day or two and come back and see if it still makes sense. The chances are you'll dodge a bullet that way because it may not be so convincing after you've given it a bit of thought. It's Warren Buffett's 20 slot rule, isn't it? You need a cooling off period before you use up one of your 20 slots. Yeah, I think that's a great rule of thumb. I mean, what I got into the habit of doing, not really formally, I just kind of fell into it because of time constraints, is that I would only make investment decisions really at a certain time. So maybe it would be like on the first Sunday of the month at 7pm, I'm reviewing my investments and deciding if anything needs to change. I'm not looking at it day to day. Yeah, that could be useful for some people. Some people like to structure their thought process, and that's a great way to do it. Of course, another important thing is to discuss it with your partner, and it may be that they have a very different view of it. I often speak to couples in power hours, and they have a very different risk appetite. But if you don't talk these things out, then you might end up buying something which is not appropriate for both of you. And I think accountability certainly helps here. If you have a group of friends who are like-minded, then if you come up with some crazy strategy for investing, they're going to give you pushback, no question. Finding a community which has a like-minded approach is very helpful. It keeps you on the rails. Do you know of any such communities, Roman? I might do, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because I think a lot of people join PensionCraft and other things like this because they think, oh, there must be some kind of secret source. If I just keep looking, eventually Roman will tell me like the way to make crazy returns. But then as they join the community and learn, what becomes really valuable is this accountability to keep people on the right track. And that's why I think the discussions are really helpful on Slack, for example, because you can really see the thought process. When someone first joins, they're looking for stock tips, perhaps. But then by the end of it, either they've left because they don't get the <laughs> stock tips or they realise, oh, OK, there is no secret source and this is unlikely to work as a strategy. There are secret sources maybe around asset allocation and diversification, which gets a bit technical, which is the other thing I think people find valuable. Yeah, I agree. And it's not obvious stuff when you first approach it. It's not something that you can immediately grasp. You have to live it in order to realise it's worthwhile. But however you find accountability and people to talk it through with, I think you benefit from it. But it's also important to just sort of manage the diet of information you're consuming, like work out where that FOMO signal is coming from. Is it coming from the news? Is it coming from social media? Is it coming from your friends in the pub giving you <laughs> terrible stock tips? 
Is it coming from Warren Buffett? Probably not. But where is this FOMO coming from? And don't be afraid to, you know, turn off the financial news for a while. Well, certainly curate your sources. So if you know there's someone who's pumping up some investment and it inevitably implodes, well, clearly they're not a very credible source of information. Or if in the past they've always called for a crash and it didn't happen, then again, that's not going to help you long term. I mean, the ideal long term investment plan is something you can set it, automate it, let it run for decades, never look at the financial news, never touch it again, and it'll still do really well for you. That's for most people, I think, the ideal. And in that situation, if you had that, you wouldn't even need to worry about what was going on in markets at any one time. No, it's good to be aware of it, I think, simply to feel that you've got your finger on the pulse. But it's probably best if that doesn't affect your investment strategy. I also like to embrace JOMO. Have you heard of this? The joy of missing out. No, I love this. You can kind of pat yourself on the back when you avoid one of these big crashes as a bubble unwinds. And if you do keep an investment journal, then you can glean joy from it by going back through those previous bullets that you've dodged and you can feel suitably smug. Although maybe don't boast to your friends in the pub about it because they'll hate you. Yeah, you don't want to rub it in people's faces. It's kind of a private smugness you want to aim for. (laughs) I feel I'm quite good at that. I'm a good private smug. (laughs) I guess the last question I wanted to ask you really is... Can you be too conscious of FOMO and therefore miss out on good opportunities when you do come across them? Yeah, I think that's possible. And there are always new investments that come along, new asset types, and perhaps there will be one which is innovative and is going to give good long-term returns. But I think as long as it passes the things on your checklist, and probably you don't want to size the trade too large, just in case it doesn't pan out then, you know, maybe a cautious approach to new things isn't a bad idea. So if it does perform well, that's great, and it'll boost your performance. But if it doesn't, then it's not going to destroy your portfolio. Don't you think we're in the luckiest position of anyone in history when it comes to investing? Because we have this long-term track record of global stock markets, and we can kind of go in to diversified equity with our eyes open. There's going to be volatility, but it's reasonable to expect the future to be somewhat like the past and equities to grow at five, six, seven percent real per year. Whereas if you were investing at the start of the 20th century, for example, where the stock markets were just becoming publicly available, it would be like going into crypto now, right? You didn't have any track record. And the fees were really high. People didn't know really what was going on. There wasn't very good education, I don't think, at that point. And we didn't have the vehicles we've got today. So I think you're right. We are lucky that we've got the tools we have but also the ability to understand what's going on much better, given our longer historical perspective. But Romin in 1920 would have been saying, be cautious about these stock market things they're talking about. Well, at that point, it was very well established. In fact, I've even got a quote from the 1900s about derivatives. So people were at that time buying call options. They didn't know how to price them because they didn't have black shoals, but they had an intuitive understanding of how they worked. So stocks have been around for a long time. Maybe the 1600s Roman is the one you're thinking about. (laughs) (laughs) What would 1600s Roman be telling us to invest in? The East India Company, obviously. That was was an incredible investment at the time. I don't think you would. I think you'd be telling us to store wheat in our basement. (laughs) (laughs) We mentioned accountability and Pensioncraft is a community which allows you to stay on the rails and stick with your investment plan. 
and get lots of great feedback from other members of the community. So if you want to learn more about that and how to join, just go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week comes from one of our listeners, Ed, who asks, when is the right time to sell an investment? Let me read from his email. He says, most of the investing advice out there concerns purchasing, but are there any useful rules of thumb that can help you decide when to sell? Obviously, if you've reached your original goals, then it's a simple decision. What if one of your investments has suddenly doubled or tripled? Should you ever take some profit? And what if it's halved? How do you know when it's time to cut your losses? Ed, I couldn't have put it better myself. Well, here I think the investment journal is really useful. You can look at the reasons why you bought the thing in the first place and see if those reasons still apply. And if they don't, then maybe it is a sensible time to sell your investment. And the key thing in that list is usually that it fits your investment goals. If the investment doesn't fit those goals anymore, then yeah, it might make sense to change your allocation. I guess the danger in looking back in the investment journal to why we originally bought something is that we might anchor based on that original price we bought at, right? Whereas we probably want to treat this as a new, fresh decision without any kind of sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, always be stateless if you can. Try and forget what happened in the past. However, if you did buy something because it looked cheap at the time, so for example, one of the things in my fund portfolio was bank stocks, which had crashed in the United States after the banking crisis there, and they looked very cheap at the time. But at a certain point in the future, the valuations will go back to normal. You hope, Roman. <laughs> well, look, eventually it's going to happen. Uh, it might take a very long time. And it's taking an ever longer time. Same for small caps. I bought them because they were cheap in the US and they're taking a long time to revert to normal. But eventually they'll get there. Yeah, eventually it's going to go back to normal. And when that happens, that's the time to sell it because the thesis no longer applies. I suppose if you're buying something because you think it's undervalued and maybe it's been undervalued for a while, you should expect it's maybe going to get a bit cheaper still. It's unlikely that you're going to tick the bottom and just ride the wave upwards, right? So just because it's, you know, dropped another 20% after you bought it, that's not a good reason to sell. No, price is usually a bad reason, as long as it looks as if it's going to recover. For single stocks, of course, there is a possibility that they won't recover at all, that they will go bankrupt. But for an index, certainly, it's unlikely that the thing's going to stay down forever. Well, let's talk about a single stock then. At what point should you cut your losses? You bought into it because it looked cheap, you thought it was going to recover. It keeps drifting down. Maybe it was Alibaba. Lots of people bought into that. Charlie Munger, great investor. He bought into Alibaba because it looked cheap. This is a Chinese internet retailer. It's kept going down. I don't think he's cut his losses yet. Well, I think it's important to understand the reasons why it's still going down. If fundamentally the company's not profitable and there's a good chance of bankruptcy, well, yeah, at that point, you probably want to cut your losses. And this is always the risk, of course, with single stocks, that they don't recover for good reasons. But usually those are fairly well telegraphed, so you'll be able to find out what's going on. And here you've got the accounts of the company to look at. So make sure you understand those. You should never buy single stocks if you don't. And just look at the profit estimates. Does it look as if they're going to turn around? And what risks are lurking? For example, with Alibaba, a lot of that risk is political. Yeah, and very difficult to quantify. What I probably would do if I was holding on to a stock which kept falling is to try and work out if I've missed something. I would really double down my efforts to scour through its financials and its prospects going forward. 
but always try to treat it as if it's a new investment today and look at the price and think, well, would I buy it at this price? And if the answer is yes, then you probably want to stick with it. And it's definitely important to look at it in the context of your portfolio, right? Whatever the investment is, whether it's a single stock, some kind of index, or another asset, what role is it fulfilling in your portfolio? Is it just a speculative thing in your fund portfolio, which you're not really relying on? Or is it there to counterbalance something else? So if I've got a big stock allocation and I'm holding some bonds, say, to hedge that, I wouldn't sell the bonds because they're falling. They're there in case stocks start falling, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think understanding that is important. If you are diversified, there's always going to be something falling in your portfolio. That's just the way it works. And remember why you bought it. Was it because it generated lots of income? That might be another reason why you bought it in the first place, and it might still be doing that. I always think what separates very amateurish retail investors from people who maybe know a bit more of what they're doing and are more likely to reach their goals is that people who are maybe not doing it so well think in discrete investment terms and they're just building up random things which they think are going to do well. Whereas someone who's building a portfolio is building things that will work well together, a recipe. And it's difficult to think like that. It's just not easy for humans to do that, to stand back and see the portfolio as a whole. And if you are thinking in that way, the sort of holistic portfolio approach, if you're going to sell one of those components, maybe for a good reason, what you should be thinking is, well, what am I going to buy in its place? There's no neutral thing here. If you just sell it and you're holding cash, well, that's still a decision. Now you're holding cash. And cash is usually going to have a drag. So always think about what you're switching into. Is it going to do better, in your opinion, than the thing you're already holding? And also, I think if you have got this kind of larger scale view, the asset allocation view, keep that very separate from the within asset class choices. So for example, if you've got 60% allocated to stocks, then separate out the decision of your regional allocation, how much to Japan, how much to Europe, how much to the US, from the overall decision of how much is in stocks and bonds. Interesting. Those are very separate things. And I guess that maybe mitigates doing the bad thing, which would be selling the stocks in the market crash and holding cash and then missing out on the recovery. Whereas if you're just switching out of one stock or one stock index into another, hopefully you're going to ride the recovery whatever stocks you're holding to some degree. Yeah, they're on an equal risk footing. So that's why they're kind of equivalent in your portfolio. So really, it's a matter of choosing between two peers on the risk spectrum. And then you control the overall risk with your asset allocation, how much is in stocks, how much is in bonds, how much is in cash and money markets. Roman, when is the right time to sell your K-Web holding? This is what I want to know. <laughs> Never. I'm just It's basically dead. You know, I mean, it sold itself. Take it to the grave. It's like owning Argentinian bonds, you know, why bother? Did you see Argentina is going to abolish its central bank? <laughs> when you see the president wielding a chainsaw, you know that you're in trouble. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. 
We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.